what is all that stuff behind you? <laughs> well, you know, just a couple of things that I've acquired uh, over the last few years. Is it all Simpsons? It's all Simpsons. What? Really? <laughs> it is. It oh, is. Oh, my goodness. Huh? I mean... There are guys like you, but they brag about it. This is this is a complete shock. <laughs> Bart, I'm asking not to whistle that annoying tone. Welcome back once again to Simpsons is Greater Than, a podcast where we take a look at the cultural impact of everybody's favorite nuclear family, the Simpsons. As always, I'm your host, Warren, better known to some of you as Bart of Darkness, but it's not just me here today, is it? Yo, I've always wanted to be, uh, <laughs> I've always wanted to talk on this beat. I love this intro song. <laughs> that's right. That's Botter. You all know Botter by now. Some of you might know me from my Simpsons collection on Instagram and Twitter. Be honest. It's great, isn't it? Go ahead and say it's great if you want to. But if not, when you're done with this episode, do me a personal favor. You know, you know, I say this every week, guys, and go to at Bart of Darkness on Instagram or Twitter and check it out. Now, this is episode 29 with Mike Reese, the great Mike Reese. But before we get into that interview, uh, Botter, why do I have you on this intro with me? This is not a normal intro. Because you wanted to spice up this intro with some extra sultry, sexy voice. And you was like, man, who am I going to call on? And I was like, I ain't doing nothing today. <laughs> I think that's the reason, but I could be completely wrong. That is not the reason, but it also is is part of the reason. So I, I like that. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, so the real reason Botter is here, this is not the Q&A episode yet. That is next week. But I did have a couple of announcements that involve Botter. And, you know, I figured it was easier to uh, talk to him than just to talk to myself. Because that's sort of weird and I have a hard time doing that. So... Uh, but in addition to that, Botter and I, uh, we have a bit of a project coming up that I think you guys will think is is cool. At least I think it's really fucking cool, and you should too. Uh, we're going to start doing these little IG Live team-ups uh, called Pod Boys, and uh, I'm going to let Botter give you a little rundown on that. It's going to be uh, it's gonna be cool. Would it be cool if I was like, Pod Boys? <laughs> <laughs> now, so, Warren, I, I, I think it's safe to say that the reception that you've gotten from our Q&A episodes has been fairly decent, right? Oh, people yeah. Aren't, aren't, people aren't calling to cancel me or ban me from the show, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think people are turning off the podcast <laughs> on, on your episodes. I think I think those are good. Yo, so we, we were talking about, like, man, what if we were to just have a casual spinoff show where we got a chance to talk about this podcast life man like we are both two very serious podcast hosts that spend a lot of time on our shows we've got a ton of uh, behind the scenes stories that we always share amongst each other that ends up being you know our two hour conversations and i think it's safe to say we think they might be pretty entertaining to share those man absolutely so pod boys kind of came out of the idea of like let's share some of these behind the scenes podcast stories that we always chat about but also get a chance to talk about some of our favorite you know hobbies and, and some of the interviews that we've got lined 
up and things that going on with our show. Yeah. So so basically, it'll be Botter and I on Instagram Live, so you can you can hang out with us and watch this happen. And we're just gonna you know he'll talk about his podcast a little. I'll talk about Simpsons is greater than a little, and it'll be you know different from either of our shows and a totally different format. So we're gonna give that a go. Um, I'm not sure when the first episode will be, possibly next week, so be sure you check out our Instagrams for that information. But uh, it's going to be sick. And like I said, next week is another Q&A, so Botter will be back for an hour or so. I got a lot of uh, very interesting questions from this most recent post, so I'm excited uh, to, to read some of those and answer some of those. I'm not excited to answer some of them. Uh, but it's going to be fun <laughs> regardless. Uh, so a couple of notes about the upcoming episode. I do actually have a real episode here, uh, which is episode 29 with the great Mike Reese, one of the first writers hired on The Simpsons. Uh, show ran seasons three and four with Al Jean. And uh, he just tells me a lot of awesome stories about, you know, all the time he's spent working on the show. Uh, he talks a lot about his new podcast that just came out. He talks a lot about the book he wrote a few years ago. So there's some really good stories in this episode. So, uh, Botter, anything else you would like to add before we start this episode? You better prepare yourself for my next Q&As and get your questions <laughs> up, right? None of these weak questions. I want to try to stump Warren. Um, and I'm excited to go ahead and, and you know, start these pod boys conversations and, you know, provide some more content for the fans, man. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. So without any more from us... Episode 29, Mike Reese. Let's go. You sort of just, you know, doing this, you do just sort of meet a lot of different people that are into it. And, uh, yeah. So I don't know where I rank in that, but I'm up there somewhere. Wow. Do you know all about Dave Mandel and his collecting and his collecting podcast? That No, actually, I don't. That name sounds familiar, but I'm not. It's not ringing a bell. Dave Mandel ran Veep for five years. He's a curb your enthusiasm sign. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he owns a house. I mean, this is what you do when you have (laughs) Larry David money. Right. He owns a house, I think, next to his house. Wow. I mean, he must just have everything, and he does a he does a collecting podcast, too. That is amazing. That is amazing. I got to check that out. I mean, you know, it's really funny. I do, and, uh, you know, we'll get into this, I'm sure, a little bit, but I, you know, I do think Simpsons has to be up there as far as, like, shows with the most merchandise. It has to be, it could be, it could have the most because I feel like every single day, and I've said this a million times on here even, but I think I think every day we find out about stuff that nobody knew about. I mean, there's just so much of it. And uh, I'm not on a quest to have it all. I really am sort of particular. I just, I have like things that I like. I really like, you know, cookie jars from France. I like a lot of more niche uh, stuff that I just find super interesting. So I'm I'm more selective. I'm not on a quest to have it all. Uh, But I do, I find out about new things every day uh, that just no one knew about. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's an insane thing. I mean, Star Wars might have more, but I feel like Simpsons has to be up there. I really think. Wow. I really think. Hey, let's save some of this for your podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll just I guess we'll get into the episode and I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's going to be awesome to to talk to you and get some stories out of you and, you know, whatever I can pull out. I'm fascinated. I'm here because we can see each other. I'm looking at your collection and 
What's notable is you should look at my home behind me. There's nothing in it. I, uh, <laughs> you guys who could, you know, God bless you, all you guys who collect things. I've never had that urge. Even as a kid, my room was always empty. People come to our apartment now and they go, where's your stuff? Were you robbed? And it's, I've just never had that collecting urge. And I'm glad people do. I'm glad people preserve things and they're out there. But you know, anyone who breaks into my house isn't going to find any sweet Simpsons merchandise. <laughs> well, you know, I can see that. Uh, I can see that Simpsons sing the blues uh, award on the wall there. And I actually do have one of those too. And it's really cool. So I like seeing Ooh, that. Really? In the what did you do on that album? <laughs> <laughs> I had to write a friggin' song to get one of these. <laughs> I, so I found one in a thrift store. Uh, someone had sent me a photo. They were like, Hey, so this thing's in here. This guy wants X amount. Do you want it? I was like, yes, I will be there. I will take it. Uh, so I don't know whose it was. I think it was given to, uh, I think it was given to a radio station in Alabama. So maybe they played do the Bartman like a million times or something. Who knows? Could be. It's a pretty sweet thing to own. It's pretty great. that I, re- I really, at least up to that point, I'd written one song in my life <laughs> and I got a platinum album for it. And Hey, it's that Simpson sings the blues. I thought the best line about that was uh, Jeff Martin, who wrote a couple of songs on that album. Said he said, "This is an album that nobody ever played twice." <laughs> <laughs> Yo, it's hard. It's hard to say because I mean, it's it's one of those things that a lot of kids like me they were really spinning that thing, and, no, and it's really wild. It's really wild to listen to it now. Um, and you know, what, a, what a moment. I feel like you couldn't make a record like that now for anything really. Oh, well, it was, it was funny. I'll tell you, I don't know if you've discussed it before, but I think it was, you know, the Simpsons that just come out, it's red hot. Sure. We're going to put out an album. And Jim Brooks said, we'll call it Simpsons sing the blues, which, <laughs> you know, was a much funnier joke 30 years ago. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, Diana Ross had made lady sings the blues. So, Good joke, and everybody laughed, and we're making gonna get we get a record deal, and then he says, "All right, we got to make a blues album," and we thought, "Well, that's just the joke, right?" No, <laughs> and it's this depressing novelty album is predominantly blues. This album comes out, and we go, "All right, well, let's get an album out," and it outsold Meet the Beatles. It sold, I think, four or five million copies. It was so huge. It's it's wild. <laughs> There's at least, you know, Michael Jackson wrote a couple of those songs. He didn't put his name on it, but Do the Bartman is a, a Michael Jackson song. Michael Jackson writing at his peak. So that's a pretty good tune. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is, it is. Well, you know, so Mike, I, I started this podcast as a response to, you know, just having a, you know, not as much to do in 2020. It was a weird year. So I started a podcast. So I like to start these off officially. My first question is always this. How are you? Sincerely, how are you doing? How is everything? It's every, you know, you don't want to look too happy because it's a terrible tragedy, but I've had a very good year. I cannot complain. And I'll explain that. There's a couple of things. One is starting, you know, a year ago this week, the Simpsons went right to Zoom. They immediately said, let's see if we can do production on Zoom. And just to give you a little background on myself, about 20 years ago, I cut down to working one day a week at the Simpsons. 
I would go, I was Wednesday. I was Mr. Wednesday and <laughs> people would kind of see me and know it was Wednesday. And uh, about 15 years ago, I said, gee, why am I still in LA? I hate Los Angeles. I've always hated it there. I lived there for 26 years. So my wife said, well, you complain the least in New York. Let's move to New York. So we moved to New York, <laughs> but I kept my one day a week job and I would fly back and forth every week. And part of the premise of this was, well, the Simpsons isn't going to last forever. And of course, it's lasted forever. And it has. I, I spent 14 years flying back and forth every Wednesday to work. And so then the show went to Zoom. And when people would say, how can you do that? How can you, why do you fly? Why can't you telecommute? And I would always get very high and mighty and say, you know, writing The Simpsons is like jazz. You've all <laughs> got to be in the same room. You feed off each other's energy. And out of necessity, we went, put the show on Zoom. And sure enough, we found out, oh, it's not like jazz. <laughs> it works perfectly well this way. And it was funny. The first day they did it was not one of my work days, but we switched the show over to Zoom. And Al called me up, Al Jean, the showrunner, and said, this works fine. He was as amazed as anybody. And so we've spent at least a solid year now doing the show on Zoom and not just the writer's rooms, but the screenings, the read-throughs. It's a 23-step process, I think, to make The Simpsons. We've done it all on Zoom and it works fine and the shows are coming out great. And uh, so that's been my work year is I've been able to keep working at The Simpsons. Uh, yes, how my year is. Otherwise, for the first four months of it, we just sat home and watched TV. We live in New York. <laughs> we were we don't have a car here. We were afraid to take mass transit. So my wife and I, we traveled as far as we could walk in a day, as far as you could walk and then walk home. And so we were like medieval peasants, you know, that's how <laughs> a peasant lived. And it was a pretty good life. And I, I sat home and I watched TV like most of America does. And uh, I got to see what was out there. And after about four or five months of that, my wife couldn't take it anymore. And we started traveling again. And uh, she loves to travel and I love her. So I go where she goes. So, <laughs> well, what was good, what people would be surprised in the pandemic is every place was safer than America. So it wasn't crazy to travel. So, right. So in the past six or seven months, we've been to Africa twice. We've been to South America three times. You know, we went wow. to Michigan. We went to the Catskills. Wow. It hasn't slowed me down. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think that everybody, when it first happened, they were just, you know, they wanted to feel safe. They wanted to take their time and sort of adjust to it. And, you know, my wife and I would joke like, hey, it's kind of nice to not have to make plans with anybody. You know, we're kind of enjoying just watching TV, making food. But after a while, you do get sort of sick of that and you're ready for things to get a little bit better. Uh, and I, I think things are finally starting to get a little bit better. So fingers crossed that that continues. People stop being as dumb and selfish and things continue to, to go up, you know. That was it. It, it did show you. There's only two rules. They tell you stay six feet away from people and wear a mask. I mean, right. 
it's not that hard. <laughs> you know, again, you can go to Africa and do and still keep those rules. And right. <laughs> at least so far, we've been going all over the place. And, you know, we wind up because for every trip, we got to get tested and we stayed clean. We, you know, we haven't been exposed yet. Yeah, that's a that's a great thing. Well, that actually leads me perfectly into my first, uh, well, my second question, whatever question. Uh, you know, before we get too into talking about the Simpsons, uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your new podcast called, oh, you know, you. what what am I doing here? Um, tell my listeners a little bit about that. So, tell me how that came about. I'll tell you exactly how it came about. I uh, <laughs> again, I work one day a week at the Simpsons, and so when I would come in on Wednesday, people would go, "What did you do this week?" and you know, what did they do that week? Oh, they drove their kids to school. You know, <laughs> they, they had, they, they mowed the lawn and I would come in and say, oh, we went to North Korea this week. And, <laughs> you know, we went to Syria. We toured Syria this week. And uh, I just had these stories and I did learn you can do an awful lot in six days, the six days I had off. And that's it. And my wife and I, we'd been to all the normal places. We'd been to Europe and that kind of thing. And she just had this taste for exotic travel. So I would come in and tell about, talk about, oh, you know, here's my trip to Chernobyl. Here's my trip to Saudi Arabia. And finally, it's one of the Simpsons writers. I won't name him. But he said, <laughs> man, you got to do a podcast. You got to do a podcast and tell these stories and I said, I don't know if I want to do a podcast. He goes, I know everybody in the podcast business. You make this thing, I'll help you. So I, you know, I bought two grand worth of equipment and <laughs> it, it was a lot of work. You know, it's sure. It, it's not a it's not some casual podcast. These are all very carefully scripted. It's just me telling stories, but it's really worked out as much as any Simpsons script. And Love it. I have a lot of guest voices coming in. So it's a little piece of theater. And wow. uh, so I made three episodes of this podcast. And then I go to the Simpsons writer. I said, all right, I made it. Who do you know in the podcast business? And he said, I don't really know anybody. <laughs> so... Luckily, I was. I found somebody. I found a company called Believe B L E A V who jumped at it, and so I've been making this podcast, and it's been it's been really interesting. It's been fun to tell the stories, and they're good stories. I mean, who do you know that's been to Chernobyl? Who do you know that's been to North Korea? And they're fun. They're true stories. They're funny. You know. They're, they're not boring. It, you know, <laughs> that's the last thing I want to be. And I told people, this is, this is the only podcast you're going to hear where you don't hear a dog barking in the back. <laughs> so I'm very proud of that. And uh, the podcast launches March 17th. It will, you know, by the time you're hearing this, yeah. it's already out there. And I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of it. And uh, I learned a lot of things writing it too. You know, this is just a different kind of writing for me to be uh and you know i'm performing it and to sort of make my you know it's not just telling a story it's sort of making myself a character and developing running jokes oh can i tell you a funny story about the podcast absolutely i want all the funny stories mike which is uh all right so i live in this building in new york and uh you know i lived here anonymously i think for a couple of years and then 
Uh, there was a Simpsons documentary, I think, when whatever, when we had our 25th anniversary or 20th anniversary show, and I was on it. And I come down the next day, and I'm, and suddenly the doorman recognizes me. He had seen me on the Simpsons documentary the night before. So suddenly, <laughs> he starts auditioning for me. He wants to be a voiceover actor. So for 12 <laughs> or 13 years... Every time I leave the building, every time I come in, he's doing shtick. He's doing <laughs> voices. He's doing character. And it's like, <laughs> it drove me a little nuts. <laughs> and so then I'm making this podcast and I go, you know, I nobody's going to want to listen to me for 15 minutes a week. I said, hey, I'll get, I'll get Trevor. I'll get the funny doorman to do the guest voices. So... You know, he's overjoyed. This has been a 13-year audition for him. And I bring him into my home studio, uh, which is right where I'm talking to you now. And I said, here's your lines. And you're going to play a guy from Colombia. And you're going to play a Brazilian woman. And you're going to play a Midwest farmer. (laughs) And what do you know? The guy's fantastic. He's so good. Wow. He's literally, he may not be as good as like, the main Simpsons performers, but I would say he's a pro, you know, (laughs) he's got an amazing range of voices. He takes direction beautifully. Wow. Uh, There's nothing I throw at him that he can't do instantly. So he's been great. And that's been a really fun experience. Wow. So, so I I guess Mike, what you're saying is if you want to succeed, you just have to find someone like yourself and bug you for 13 years. It's really true. I mean, there is that lesson. I, I, I hate telling it to people, which is if you want to break in, bother everybody. <laughs> bother, you know, just be a pain in the ass. And, you know, if it's a friend of a friend, bother them, you know, don't be shy. You'll never get anywhere by being bashful. Nah, I love it. I love it. That's that's really really good advice, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start pestering everyone. So just don't to tell people out there because don't bug me, and, <laughs> and I would say I only say don't bug me because I've been helping people for about thirty years. I really did help everyone who came my way. I will bet there's a hundred people working today that I helped them get in, but. I helped enough people, nobody will listen to me anymore. (laughs) Literally everywhere, you know, I knew agents uh, that I could send people to. The agents don't want to hear from me or I'd help. I would help more people. I'm really, you know, I'm an older guy. I'm not really of much use to anyone. So now I (laughs) help myself. Yeah. So, so bug whoever you want, but submissions are closed for Mike. Mike's cutting them off. So leave Mike alone. I I will say too, (laughs) um, especially since Disney took over the Simpsons, we're not allowed to hear anything. We're not allowed to read scripts. We're not allowed. If you have a great idea for the Simpsons, you can't tell me. And in fact, if you have a great idea for anything, you just, Oh, Mike, I want to tell you about this idea I have for something else altogether. Disney says, no, (laughs) they've been sued a lot, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's still great advice. So everybody, if you want to make it, just find someone, find someone with a friend and bug them. I like that advice. It's good. It's really true. It's really <laughs> good advice. You know, almost everyone who's a producer at The Simpsons working in some capacity started out as the guy getting lunch and the person doing Xeroxing. The, 
people, everybody came in right at the bottom at the kind of job you'd never want to do, but it really works. And, you know, you come in and you have people's ears, you know, and when we, you work at the Simpsons, we will read your script, you know, <laughs> it's good. It's good. Well, I want to, I want to dive into a little bit of history, Mike, and sure. um, a lot of this, some people probably know, but I love hearing some of the fresh takes on it. Uh, you wrote for the Lampoon magazine at Harvard uh, with several people who ended up writing for the Simpsons, Al Jean, John Vitti, Jeff Martin. Uh, what I'm curious to know is when did you realize that you were funny? Like going into that, did you, did you realize you had a knack for writing comedy? How did, how did you start to figure that out? Yeah. You know, it's, when I was a kid, I mean, from the, from the time I was a very little kid, like five or six years old, I would see comedians on TV and I loved the comedians. And the, the key thing was I never wanted to be the comedian. I always wanted to be the guy who wrote the jokes. I knew people wrote stuff. And when I would see a comic on TV, I always sort of imagined there was some guy right backstage with a typewriter banging out <laughs> this stuff. And that was it. And I have to say, I never thought I would wind up doing it, you know? I wanted to be a comedy writer the way a kid wants to be an astronaut or a kid wants to win the <laughs> Super Bowl. It's just just a crazy dream. It wasn't a career goal or anything like that. But I like being funny and I like I liked writing funny. I was not a class clown or anything. I was a very quiet, very shy kid. But I like to write funny. And uh, so when I was picking colleges, I, I picked Harvard just because they had a humor magazine, the Harvard Lampoon. And again, you know, it's produced so many writers now, probably a hundred TV writers came out of the Harvard Lampoon. But at the time I was there, there was one, it was one guy in 150 years of the Harvard Lampoon wound <laughs> up with a job at Saturday Night Live. So it wow. was not a pre-career thing at all. Uh, I just had fun working at the magazine and then I thought I would graduate and become a funny lawyer or something like that. <laughs> uh, but I got a lot of breaks. I mean, it was, uh, uh, I was writing for the magazine. I was working with Al Jean, even back then we were college roommates and national lampoon magazine, which will mean nothing to people under like 55 years old <laughs> the national lampoon magazine read our stuff and uh hired us right out of college so i had a, a comedy writing job right out of school and i was very very happy there and then different opportunities kept coming our way after that and we just jumped at them wow and one of them was the simpsons uh just to jump on about 10 years from national lampoon uh, the Simpsons was starting up and they had offered the job to two friends of ours, Max Pross and Tom Gamble, and they didn't want to do it. They had, <laughs> they had a job. It was funny. We were all working together on It's Gary Shandling Show. And It's Gary Shandling Show is very interesting how, how much of that show wound up moving over to The Simpsons. Uh, but it was two friends of ours, Max Pross and Tom Gamble, were working with us at the Shandling Show, and they offered us this job that they turned down, which was The Simpsons, and that's sort of where my life story ends. <laughs> it's just been 32 years at The Simpsons. Wow. Well, you know, so being one of the first writers hired there, 
what what do you remember about that first day in the room? What do you uh, what did you think when you saw the characters or, or heard what the show was going to be about? How did it strike you? Yeah, I'm trying to think of the order of things I had heard. It was you know I'd watched the Tracy Ullman show and. I liked the Little Simpsons cartoons. I liked them. I didn't love them. (laughs) I thought they were were pretty cute and it was fun to see. And then, so I'm working at the Shandling show. We're on a summer hiatus and they said, you want to come in and meet Sam Simon and Matt Groening? And I was individually fans of both of theirs. You know, I loved Taxi and Cheers, which Sam worked on. And uh, I I used to read Matt Groening's comic strips. They were in the local free paper. So I, I was a fan of both of these guys. And then I go in to have lunch with them and I'm shocked how young they both are. You know, <laughs> I was still like 22 and they might have been 26, 27. Wow. And it just sounded fun. It just sounded like a fun summer job. And <laughs> it's almost impossible to, to get across to people how inc- inconsequential this all sounded that cartoons. <laughs> You know, at the time, 1988, car, a cartoon meant this is what you show on Saturday morning and it's cheap and right. it's stupid, but mostly it's cheap and poorly animated and just for kids. So they're starting this animated show. Al and I are working on it, like going in two or three days a week. And I'm not telling anyone what I'm doing because I thought I have hit rock bottom <laughs> fighting for a cartoon. And we just had fun. It was one of the most fun summer jobs I ever had. We just thought this is a summer job making The Simpsons. And Al and I, I think, you know, within six or seven weeks, it cranked out three of the first six episodes. We never worked too hard. We'd always take, you know, our, our offices were very close to a multiplex and we'd always just bail on work at two in the afternoon and go, <laughs> see some terrible 80s movie. (laughs) So it was pure fun. And, uh, you know, I like to say, oh, maybe that's why the show is a hit, is we just had fun. We didn't think, what does an audience want to see? We we thought, nobody's going to watch this, so let's make a kind of show we want to see. Right. And and I got to say, I really do believe, like, I I think that because you guys approached it in a way that you made a show you wanted to see – Somehow that special sauce just really came together and made, you know, this untouchable beast called The Simpsons that literally led to people like me having rooms full of the stuff in his house. So, you know, there, there is no explanation other than it just was the perfect moment, the perfect cast, the perfect group of people. I say this all the time on the podcast, but it really was this this moment that was too perfect. Everything came together a little too well. So it is amazing. And there, there's a funny thing, you know, we're writing these things and we're sort of even the scripts, if you look at a Simpsons script, it's not formatted like anything else. It's sort of half a movie script, half a TV script. But once we start making these things, we realize we don't know how to make an animated show. You know, we kind of know, you know how to make a cartoon, but how do you make 22 of them a year? And our animators didn't know. And they go, well, the last time anyone had done this was uh, the Flintstones, like 20 years before. And they said, we'll ask those guys. And they come back, well, they're all dead. So so they really just kind of had to make up everything. I mean, you you think of it, making up characters, making up stories and that kind of, but just making, we had to make up the physical process 
by which we produce these shows. It's it's so it's so crazy. I mean, and I've you know I've been lucky to have you know animators and directors and and different people from the show on this podcast, and I really I always say that. I think that fandom that exists within the people that make it sort of like I was saying a second ago is I think you take all of that and it really does make something like the Simpsons last. And I think that's why it's special. And I think that's why it is the beast that it is. Like I said, I mean, it's just a, it's a wild thing. I can't figure it out. I'll I'll say this, (laughs) you know, when the the original writing staff, we had six or eight guys. It was funny, uh, even to creating America's most beloved family, it was all a bunch of young single guys. Nobody was even, nobody had a marge in their life, much less some kids. <laughs> we young and childless, but also, except for Al Jean and me, nobody on that staff had ever written a script before. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And it sort of shows you the desperation they had in trying to get a staff for this show. Nobody with a respectable career was going to work on it. So it was a bunch of sketch writers and you had an advertising man like uh, John Swartzwelder coming in. Very, very eclectic. And I will say this, like I just got during pandemic, I had so little to do. I said, I'm going to get Disney plus and I'm watching Disney plus and I'm watching old Simpsons. I'm watching the Simpsons from season three and four when I was the Al Jean and I were the bosses and I watch them and I go, how did I do this? I don't (laughs) get it. I mean, there is something, you know, I agree with the fans. There's something really special in these early years. And I go, I don't know how to do that. That's better than I can do now. And I don't know where that came from. Let's have polished the, you know, I know how to make a show dense. You just keep putting in jokes, but I don't know. It just felt right. It had heart and character and story and jokes. And uh, and I'd never, Al and I had never run anything before. I'm, I don't know. I don't know how to run the dishwasher in my <laughs> Well, you know, it's 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 funny you say that, and that sort of does lead me into this question as well. But you talk to people, even writers on the show, that say before they were on staff, they they thought season three or season four was like the greatest TV they had ever seen. And, you know, I, I think those seasons that you and Al ran really set a tone for what the show became. And you know, you sort of just said it, but looking back on those seasons has to be, you know, a real experience now. Like it has to seem like you're almost separate from it. Like you can't even remember that time in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. And I don't, I don't have a lot of memories either. It is funny. I can't remember a lot. Part of it is the process of doing audio commentaries. You know, we all go in and you can hear me blabbing on (laughs) if you still have a DVD player and you get those seasons those DVDs, but especially going in and sort of downloading whatever I could remember from those seasons, it's all gone. It's all gone. I literally don't have a lot of memories of whatever, you know, how I spent five or six years of my life. And, but, and it was the other reason I don't have these memories is it was just focused. You know, we were so intent that, uh, you know, you don't remember it. You're too, you know, we're, we're, Al and I were working 80, 90, 100 hours a week and always in the moment. So, yeah, not a lot I carry away with. And the things that you remember are bad things like 
I gained 70 pounds, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure when you're staying up until 2 a.m., you know, to, to make sure you make this guest character have a funny name, I'm sure it's easy to push some of that out of your brain over time, you know? Yes. Yeah. It just, all you want to do is get home. It's, uh, so that was it. It is a strange dichotomy in that the first two or three years of the show were pure fun. And then the next couple of years were pure hell where <laughs> I literally, literally, you know, I was working so hard and the pressure was on me and Al that, uh, I was going, please let me have a small heart attack. I know I don't <laughs> want to die, but I need like two weeks off and it's going to take a heart attack or better to get me out of here. Yeah. Just give me a break, please. Let me just yeah. have like a, a short hospital stay. Just Isn't that sad? <laughs> but I don't know. That's how you make a show. That's, that's how you make a show. Well, I, I also had Al on the podcast way back in episode four, uh, really early into the podcast. Somehow Al wanted to talk to me even then. Uh, so anyone that has listened to that episode should. But we also talked a little bit about The Critic, uh, uh-huh. which I definitely think deserved a way better fate. I love The Critic. Um, you know, how different is is it working in television now than it was back then? Or, or is it? It's, uh, it's certainly a show like The Critic that couldn't have failed worse. It, in whatever it was, 1992, I think would succeed very well now. I mean, because you don't need a mass audience. You know, we were making the critic and to ABC's credit, they just, ABC and then Fox, they let us make the show we wanted to make. We got so little input from them and uh, we made this show and then they put it in front of a giant national audience and it's not a show for a giant national audience. You know, we, when you're doing Ingmar Bergman parodies and Feline <laughs> parodies, you know, it's going over people's heads. There was a funny, terrible moment we had at the critic. We're, we're reading the paper and it was an article that said the average American sees one movie a year. And we go, Oh crap. Cause we're doing six movie parodies. An episode, we go, well, they're not getting five of these. <laughs> so well, that was it. So we made it. I'm glad it's found an audience. Now is the time to make the critic. And we're always hearing, oh, reboot the critic. And it's just, you know, I'm I'm the biggest opponent to rebooting the show only because it doesn't make sense. There's no movie critics anymore. There's no critical TV show. You know, there's no Siskel and Ebert anymore. Right. And I mean, right now, there's no movie theaters. So, I don't know. And the, <laughs> the most beloved members of the cast are all dead. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. How, that's something else. Uh, it's amazing. The Simpsons cast, the core cast, doesn't die. You know? <laughs> we have so many dead people on the critic. So. Wow. Yeah, the Simpsons has been very lucky in that way. They've only lost, you know, three people, I think. Uh, no, no main characters other than Phil Hartman. And they've been very, very lucky in that way. I mean, it's, you know, I, I will, I will say my guy, I, I would definitely vote for bringing the critic back, even though, uh, you know, it might not make as much sense to people now. Uh, I, I definitely, I definitely think there's an, an audience for it. I think there's a lot of people like me that, you know, I discovered it a little bit later. I was a little younger. I, I saw a lot of it on comedy central and I just thought it was hilarious. I mean, it really connected with me and I always wanted more of it. So I mean, it's hard to say in, in a time where 
so many things come back, I think there's definitely a bit of an audience for the critics. So I don't know. I, I can't tell you what to do, Mike, but. <laughs> uh, duly noted. All right. Maybe your one will push me over. Certainly, I will say I saw John Lovitz the, uh, not too long ago, and he's going, bring it back. People, I'll do it. It doesn't even have to be a cartoon. I'll do it live. <laughs> I would love to see a live version of that. I know from talking to Al that that was originally sort of the idea was to, was to do it live. So I think that's super interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Again, you could probably do that now. At the time, we're pitching this live action show with six movie parodies in it. We got, How would you have shot that? And uh, now they've gotten better at that kind of thing. <laughs> well, you know, when you when you talk about writing – uh, for television, especially, you know, some of the shows that you've worked on. Um, what do you think the right balance is between just funny and sincerity? Like, what do you think that the mix is? Or do you even know? Oh, I, you know, I, I learned it, I think, early on, from, you know, mostly from James L. Brooks. I don't know what the show would have been without Jim Brooks. But, you know, he taught us 45 seconds of heart is all you need. It's, uh, you know, and this was the time of TGIF shows and Full House and that kind of thing. Anyone who remembers that stuff where, sure, you know, you'd be watching some dumb comedy and then it would end with three minutes of let's teach a lesson and then a big hug and it was sickening and it was terrible and it was formulaic. But Jim Brooks taught us, you know, you can be, you know, Homer especially, let him be antic and stupid and the worst guy in the world. And then something suddenly catches him and he realizes he's got to be a better man. And it's literally all you need is less than a minute of that to really catch people off guard and make you understand the sincerity of it all. Sure. And I mean, I, I think, you know, there's people I've actually heard, which I think is a very odd take, but you hear some people say like, you know, yeah, I love, I love the Simpsons. I, you know, I don't love the, you know, the emotional episodes as much as I like the flat out mm. silly ones. I personally love that heart. Some of my favorite episodes. And I, I think that heart is, you know, in a way, even, even leading into episodes that are not full of heart without those early ones that had that, I don't think you have such an emotional connection to some of those characters. So uh, I'm, I'm always curious to hear like what, you know, what someone who writes uh, thinks, how, the, how important they think that is to a story. So that's yeah, cool. That's it. I think it's really important. You're probably, you're making a great point that I've never heard before. And that's just, you know, we did it. We may not have to do it every week anymore, but we did it enough in the early days uh, just to overcome the skeptics and make them realize, oh, these are real people and we should care about them. And, right. You know, Homer wants to do the right thing, even if he doesn't always do it. <laughs> even if he's a, a blundering idiot most of the time, which, you know, I've, I've heard you say before in other interviews that, uh, you know, Homer is in a sense a comedy writer's dream because, you know, he's like you said, he's fat, he's bald, he's stupid, he's a little bit of everything. Uh, outside of Homer, uh, what characters would you say you gravitate towards when it comes to just pitching jokes or, or do you have a preference there? Yes. I, I was always good with Kent Brockman. I was always <laughs> good with, you know, which were just jokes, you know, coming up next on the show, those, those kind of jokes, funny mortises, you know, those I thought I was particularly good at. I, you know, that's it. If I have a skill, it was just writing the jokey jokes that weren't, 
anybody's character, which I think is sort of where the critic came from. You know, they're, those were jokes not out of character, not out of story. They were just, here's a movie that bugs me, so I'm going to make fun of it. If anyone, if they want to see what I'm up to, they should follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mike Reese Writer. I guess that's how you tracked me down. But that's that's what I like doing. I just put a joke out there. And, you know, Donald Trump was very good for four years of making <laughs> jokes. And now that he's gone... I, I become Jay Sherman. I become the critic. You know, I've got, <laughs> I just bitch about movies and I, you know, I'll make as many jokes about the Snyder cut as anyone <laughs> will listen to. Well, you know, there's, there's no shortage of just stupid people on the internet. And I tell everyone like, you know, part of social media, if you find a use for it, which I, you know, have somehow found a use for at times, uh, part of dealing with it is just, you know, making it through all the idiots, because if there's one thing we've learned about this world, especially during Donald Trump's presidency, uh, not to get too political, but we all know that the man's a moron. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if we've learned anything during his time as a prominent figure, it's that there are way more dumb people than even some of us thought. So, uh, and that does carry over into the internet, unfortunately. That's it. I've been very lucky. I, you know, when I get some nasty feedback, Oh my God, it kills my night's sleep. I'm, I'm, way too sensitive and luckily you know in years on twitter i haven't run into that many trolls i haven't been too critiqued um and i will say this i will say and i learned this especially doing a lot of public speaking for the simpsons and you know i wrote a book about the simpsons i had to go out and promote it is there are a lot of people who cross the line to enjoy the simpsons and it is to say you know, we're a show with a very liberal, anarchic, libertarian attitude. A lot of conservatives love the show. You know, famously, Ted Cruz uh. loves The Simpsons. <laughs> and if you ever need an extra reason to hate Ted Cruz, make sure you go on YouTube and see him auditioning for The Simpsons. <laughs> but, you know, it's amazing. Someone like Ted Cruz likes our show. You know, we don't speak to his politics and i think more conservatives come over to see our liberal comedy than liberals would go over to see some conservative comedian if if there was one that's a that's a great point that's a great point i mean i you know i i do think that a show like the simpsons has the potential to cross the line like you said to to things yeah. like that but i will say you know those are the kind of people i, I would say well outside of ted cruz People that feel that way that are able to laugh at themselves, maybe maybe there's hope for them. It's the people that, you know, uh, are out there being like, they, they refuse to be open to being made fun of or they, you know, see another point of view, which is often what we associate with some of that anyway. But uh, I think that is the problem. If they're willing to come over and laugh, then there's, there's hope for them, you know? Yeah. There's a, a great thing is having been at The Simpsons right there from week one was – People were shocked and appalled at the show. The first first few weeks, people were appalled. And you had a little boy saying, I'm Bart Simpson. Who the hell are you? <laughs> Nobody had seen anything like that. And what happened was anyone who objected just bailed. Very early on, you know, it was very clear what The Simpsons was. And if it wasn't your cup of tea, they stopped watching. So, yeah. you know, over the, you know, 32 years, 
I'll bet we could fit all the hate mail in a small box and <laughs> nobody's ever sued us. So it's been pretty good that way. Yeah. All things considered pretty good. I mean, you know, I, I find that, you know, one reason I do this podcast in the first place and I talk about this all the time is, you know, I, I'm not one of those people that thinks the Simpsons got bad at a point, or at least I don't think it got bad in a way that's unwatchable or, you know, there peaks and valleys in comedy across the board. And, and that goes with time periods or just the state of comedy at the time, all these things factor in. So I, you know, I, one thing I, I set out to do with this is to let people know that, you know, The Simpsons has always been funny and it's still funny today. And I don't think there's any reason to think that every single episode of a show that's been on for, you know, 30 going on 33 years uh, is in some way bad. So, um, you know, I'm curious, what do you what do you think about people that say that sort of thing, Mike? It's funny. It's, um, you know, it hurts. It hurts. And yet, you know, I go home. There are seasons I don't love. There are episodes I don't love. And I worked on them. I mean, I'm not saying they wrecked it. It's like I wrecked it, too. I've <laughs> observed a few things. One is is um, Al found the first time a critic said The Simpsons is going downhill. And it was season two. <laughs> season two already. They were saying it's going downhill. And, you know, I've lived through it all where people go, it's gone downhill since season four. And then that the, the goalpost has been moved. It's going it's been downhill since season six. And I think now even the angriest fan, now mind you, is such a an oxymoron, the angry fan. <laughs> right, the right. Who, the guy who's hated every episode of The Simpsons for 32 years. <laughs> um, even they like now the first 10 years. And if you go on Amazon, you know, all you need to do is look on Amazon, look at the DVD releases, and you'll see the the ratings are still way up. You know, season 17, season 18, where everybody, you know, it was just common to say the show sucks. And then you look season 17, 18, and the viewer reviews are, hey, this was pretty good. Oh, I was surprised. Right. Well, that's it. We, you know, the show's not as bad as people like to think. The <laughs> other thing was something Al Jean said, which is you can like it, you can hate it, but you can never say we didn't work our hardest. We work, yeah. you know, we work hard. We work much harder, I would say, now than we did 30 years ago. 30, yeah. You know, 30 years ago, it was much easier to write The Simpsons. We hadn't done everything. We hadn't worn out every character. So, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to find a new story these days. So, but that being said, I know, you know, I'm proud of every show and I know how hard we worked and how late we worked and on everything. And every joke, every single joke you see on The Simpsons was the work of, has been vetted. It's, it's like six or seven <laughs> audiences over a year have heard that joke and laughed at it. And Every single joke you see on the show was the product of six or seven people sitting in a room for an hour going, we got anything better, anything better, <laughs> we do better. Well, you know, I'll tell you what I say to those people. If you really think that, you know, uh, if, if, if you are some expert and you think you know exactly when a show gets bad and why, and, <laughs> you know, every single episode beyond a certain point is bad, I implore any of you guys to start a show. That lasts yeah. as long as The Simpsons. I dare you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I, 
I challenge you now. <laughs> Come up with something. It's hard. It's hard, and we can't be new. What, what's funny is as ancient, as old as The Simpsons is, Every once in a while, you, you know, I can take comfort in a show that's much older, Saturday Night Live, right? Which is a show. I mean, I've I've watched the whole run of the show, and people have been saying it's gone downhill for forty four years. Or you know, everybody loved that first season, and then it's been downhill ever since. And I watch it, and yeah, sometimes there are bad seasons and bad casts, and then it comes back and even in its worst years, it manages to be relevant, to make the news, to be something you talk about and something <laughs> people imitate. And that's what I think The Simpsons is. That's well said. The way I, I would be sad and something would be lost whenever, if Saturday Night Live went away, that's what The Simpsons is. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll take it as long as I can have it, Mike. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I've been saying that on this podcast since the first episode and I, I feel that way sincerely. And, you know, I, I always clear up to people. There's episodes that I don't love, but I, I always say, if you watch an episode and you don't love it, go ahead and watch the next one, you know, watch the one after that, like, see what you think. There's always going to be peaks and valleys. I mean, when you have 700 plus episodes, um, But, you know, you mentioned, and I want to touch on this just a little bit, that you wrote a book a few years ago called Springfield Confidential. Uh, If you don't already own it, you should be buying it right now. Go ahead and hit pause on the podcast and get on Amazon, buy it, because it's very funny. Uh, What inspired you to write a book all about your time at The Simpsons, and what was it like for you to to work on that? Yes, it was uh, a guy named Matt Clickstein came to me with a completely different idea. It was uh, I would never presume to write a Simpsons book. And who am I? And, you know, if I'm writing a book, all these other people, the idea was going to be a travel log. He and I, this guy, Clickstein, who I'd never met, we, we were going to get in a car and drive around America. And the book was going to be Mike Reese's America. <laughs> and we that's the book we sold. And Every time I would hear from the producers, the the editors, they said more Simpsons, and you got to put more Simpsons in. And the book, and it was a terrible title. The book was going to be called "Smiling All the Time" because if you, you can watch me on video, I think people can hear it in my voice. I smile all the time. Happy <laughs> guy. Yeah. So, terrible title for a book. So we sell the book "Smiling All the Time" and. The contracts come back from HarperCollins and they go, it just says contract for untitled Simpsons book. <laughs> so a ways into development of this, this book, I just said to Clickstein, they just want a Simpsons book. I'm going to, let's just give them a Simpsons book. And the thing that was really nice and speaks volumes about it was I wouldn't have done it. And I, I go into work and, t- and told the people, Oh, they just want me to write a Simpsons book. And the the writers were going, well, you should, you should, you've been there, you've seen it all. You should, but you know, they're just, they were so encouraging, you know, nobody said, who are you? Or that's presumptuous or how can you speak for our work? But everybody was very nice about it. And uh, there's never, you know, even when I was doing it, I was telling people I'm writing the book that's going to get me fired. (laughs) And I never heard a bad word about it. And I I will say, just because you were plugging the book, the book came out and 
it only got good reviews. We only got good reviews. Now, the the one, the nastiest thing that happened was the AV club. And the AV club has just made a, a business, you know, it used to be part of the onion. Now it's just the AV. I think the AV stands <laughs> for all vicious. They hate the Simpsons on a weekly basis. Every week they say it's rotten. So my book comes out and yeah, they say they give it the only bad review I've gotten internationally. They said they gave it like a, a B minus or a C minus. And then you turn the page in the AV club, one page, they give it a C minus. And the next page was an article, best books of the month. And there's Springfield confidential. <laughs> so it's like, all right, C minus is what that must be their upper grade. Yeah, that must it must be a good grade for them to. Yes. to, well, to I have a guess that's what they all got in school. So <laughs> I do better than the C minus. Wow. Yeah, I mean the the book is the book is awesome, Mike. And I I don't know if Mike remembers this or not, but when he was promoting that book in Atlanta, I actually showed up with my episode guide and and had him sign it. And uh, he called me his number one fan. So I've just been latched oh. onto that ever since, Mike. Hey, that was you. <laughs> that was me. I have no idea. Okay. Now, <laughs> I do remember these things. I do. Uh, uh, in fact, in the podcast, it's it's a little too self-referential to do it right away. But I, I've got it written. It's, I think, episodes 20 and 21 are, tra- you know, the, it's a travel podcast, but it's travels with the simpsons where i talk about going around first going around america and then going all over the world talking about the simpsons i've been to 22 countries talking about the show and it's amazing i mean every every country loves the simpsons more than america right you know i think i think this country takes it for granted a little but uh man you can't believe how passionate people are for the simpsons in Italy, in Russia, in right. Iran, places like that. Yeah, people people love it. I mean, and I'll tell you, you know, sometimes these are more of an interview. Sometimes these are more of a casual, fun conversation. I really like how this has been uh, just sort of hanging out with Mike Reese here. But one thing that I'm curious how you feel, and this is something I think I want to ask more people from The Simpsons. Uh, one thing that absolutely drives me insane is when people say that the Simpsons predict things. This is just oh, something that really, really gets to me. Uh, why do you think it is that people are so eager to call similarities predictions? Um, it is funny in that, you know, people of a certain age, I don't know what the cutoff is, but people older than 35, I don't know, whatever what it is, they get, you know, they get it. All right, oh, isn't that cute? Here's something, and it was on the Simpsons. There's people under a certain age who've just been inculcated with this. Simpsons predicts things and they really believe it. And they go, do you have a crystal ball? How do you do it? Do you think? And I dismiss it as, I mean, I think it's really kind of dumb, but it's it's (laughs) It's got people talking about the show. It's got people interested again. And all right, I know it's too bad that like 30% of our audience is watching us like we're fortune tellers, you know, they seem to have forgotten we're, we're a comedy show. Um, but yes, it's very silly. It, it does open you up. What, I, what it's made me think about is how a lot of uh, comedy predicts things. Again, you go to Saturday Night Live and 
the first commercial parody ever on Saturday Night Live, I remember this so well, was an ad for a three-blade razor. And it was sort of, at the time, they had just invented double-edged razors, and a lot of people thought, well, this is stupid, so here's an ad for a three-blade razor. What could be crazier than that? And, you know, you watch it now, you can't even tell it's a parody. So (laughs) this kind of thing happens. When I was at National Lampoon, I wrote a joke. I got paid $25 for this joke. They just said, Warner Brothers has announced production of Lost in Space, the movie. <laughs> and at the time, that was a gag. They were making Star Trek, the movie, and who would ever think to dust off Lost in Space? It was a joke. And then, you know, whatever, five or six years later, they made Lost in Space, the movie. And so... You see, it's it's a pretty common thing. I think The Simpsons, <laughs> we predict more just because we make more jokes. We, you know, there are more episodes where you can find that. I think they said the show that's predicted the most is uh, The Jetsons. Hey. <laughs> all, those, all those things The Jetsons had. I, I would love, I should watch some old Jetsons because I get the feeling a lot of what they had just exists now. It's not right. Right, well, do not comedy at all. The the reason that I, you know, I touch on that, and this is something I feel like people message me a lot about, and I don't have arguments, but it's something that I just find so ridiculous. And I always tell people, you know, if you go play darts every day and you're just throwing them all day long, you're eventually going to have a decent amount of bullseyes because you're throwing so many darts. So, to anyone that's out there really believing, uh, or sharing videos that they think prove that the Simpsons predict things. The show has over 700 episodes, guys. That's why. That's yeah. why. You make enough jokes, a lot of them start to seem very similar to real things that happen. So I'm, I'm going to ask all of you to just stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone just stop it. I got um, to jump in with one thing, which is there's one thing we genuinely predicted. We uh, it's, It was just some joke. Where the bullies, you know, Jimbo, Dolph, and Kearney are handicapping the Nobel Prize in economics. It's a real Simpson-y highbrow joke. And we said, let's do some research. Who do we think is going to win? And we made a lot of calls and wasted a lot of time. But we nailed that. We nailed the nominees and the winner for the Nobel Prize in economics. Nobody cares. Nobody cares that we actually worked hard to predict something and got it right. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, uh, so this is the part of the podcast where I normally talk about merchandise, but I'm going to keep in the clip from the beginning uh, where, you know, Mike sort of talked about how he doesn't keep a lot of merchandise. So uh, there's not much to touch on there, but I am curious. I will ask you this. uh, In those early days, were you shocked at how much stuff I know Al talked about how there was a whole store dedicated to just the Simpsons in 1990. Was it bizarre to see something you were working on, especially something you didn't expect uh, to be much of a thing to have a whole store full of stuff? Yes, that was amazing. Uh, It was amazing. You know, when early on, I mean, you know, maybe at the start of the second season, they gave us like a trash bag full of merchandise. So they were already cranking it out that it was a giant bag full of merchandise. Uh, I couldn't get rid of fast enough. Here, (laughs) give it away. Here, kid, take this. I didn't want any of it. And that stuff got to be worth money. I wish I could. 
the the one I really remember was there was a T-shirt that just had the Simpsons on it, and it said Bart, Lisa, Homer, Mom. Wow! They were making T-shirts before Marge even had a name, and I go, "That's a collector's item." Oh, that would go for big bucks now, Mike. I mean, I'm always telling people, uh, you know, and I and I have seen some stuff online. If any of my listeners can can clarify this, if they know. I do know that there were a couple of shirts floating around in 1988 before the show really, you know, knew what it was. And, uh, you know, it's unclear how real some of those are, but I would assume that some of those are real. And anyone that has those is probably going to, you know, put their kids through college with it. So uh, (laughs) hold on to those if you have them. And I'm sure you know the story. It's in, I think it's in Springfield Confidential that I think they impounded 35 million bootleg shirts and was something... (laughs) You know, legally, we loved it. And Matt Groening collected all the bootlegs. We thought it was all fun. Black Bart was really huge. Oh, yeah. Ross the Bard and Bart stuck in the ass of a woman. (laughs) These were huge that we had to hire bootleg police. And they impounded 35 million bootleg Simpson shirts. And wow. they had the idea, well, let's give it to people who have no shirts. They were going to donate it to Ethiopia. <laughs> and uh, somebody said, how is that going to look where you have a whole country full of poverty stricken, hungry people wearing Simpsons T-shirts? <laughs> and it was it was just bad optics. So like, <laughs> they torched them or pulled them off. Yeah. And I will say, you know, uh, the bootleg stuff, a lot of it, especially the shirts, there's people that really seek out those early bootlegs and uh, they can also go for big bucks. So yeah, Mike, you would have been smart to hold on to some of that, but you know, luckily (laughs) (laughs) just so you could give it to me, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I own a thing. I don't think I own a single piece of Simpsons merchandise, you know, amazing. I work there all day. I don't want to go home and look at them. Yeah, well, you know, when I had Jay Kogan on, one of my favorite things is he was like, yeah, I didn't really keep merchandise. You know, it'd be like working at McDonald's and going to get a hamburger. You just don't really want to bring it (laughs) home, you know? (laughs) Well, Mike, uh, you know, again, you know, you're a Simpsons legend. You're one of the funniest people of all time. And uh, I just want to thank, you know, you don't have to believe me, Mike, but trust me, it's true. And I think my listeners agree. Uh, So, you know, it's awesome to sit down and, and talk with you and hear your stories and uh, but before we get out of here, um, you know, do you have any shout outs or plugs or just anything other than the podcast and the book that you want to tell people to check out? Um, I guess, you know, I write children's books, too. I've written 20 children's books, and I started doing that to atone for The Simpsons. Again, just in that first season, I got so much flack from, you know, my mother's friends, basically, older, <laughs> you know, my my friend's parents were saying, I had shows terrible, blah, blah, blah. So I started writing kids' books. I had I produced no children in this world, but I produced 20 children's books. <laughs> and a nice one that's out right now, the latest one is called Turtle and Tortoise Are Not Friends. And it's funny. It's a funny book. But mostly, please just go to the podcast. That's if I have to push anything, don't buy the book. The book, you know. The book's in every library in America. You don't have to buy it and put money in my pocket, but read it and uh, but listen to what am I doing here? It's anywhere you can get a podcast. And that's it. I, I've had fun with it, and I think it's funny. And, yeah. Uh, 
I, I can't wait to listen to the podcast. By the time you're all hearing this episode, it is up. And I've probably already laughed my ass off listening to those episodes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as for me, as for Mike Reese, I'll see everybody next week. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out the official Instagram at Simpsons is greater than or follow me on Twitter at Simpsons is great. If you're curious about me or my Simpsons collection, just search for Bart of Darkness on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again for checking this out. I'll see you next week.